I enjoy going to weddings, especially when the minister preaches the gospel. And I love marriages, the ambiance of weddings, the food and drink, the people, being with my beautiful wife. Weddings are, are often wonderful. Imagine someone going to a wedding only to be told, hey, excuse me, I I'm sorry, who are you? Uh, yeah, we don't have your name. Uh, please leave. That's embarrassing. But let's say that that unwelcome guest was never actually invited. They just showed up. Let's say that they met the bride and groom at, at the checkout counter the, the, the week earlier and, and assumed that they were invited to their wedding. How bold, how pretentious. Maybe their meal at Arby's on the way home will humble them a little bit. So let's flip that a little bit. When you show up to a wedding and you're welcomed in, and you're seated to join the ceremony and to join the celebration and, and you see your name in calligraphy at the reception, table 12, and, and it makes you, feel, makes you feel known, loved, a part of something wonderful. You belong because you're known. Imagine living life wrongly assuming that Jesus knows you, that you have relationship with him only to hear Jesus tell you on the last day, I never knew you, depart from me. That's a, that's a terrifying thought. But imagine Jesus in all of his regal splendor knowing you on the last day and, and saying to you, Dave, Jade, Katie, Steve, John, Jen, Christina, come. You who are blessed by my Father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Is there anything better than being known by the King of Kings? Jesus said, I know my own and my own know me. There is unparalleled joy in knowing Christ and being known by Christ. So here's the big point that I'm after, to truly know Christ and to be truly known by Christ produces the ever-increasing and assuring fruit of righteousness on the hard way to eternal life with the King. In other words, heartfelt obedience to God confirms intimate covenant relationship with God. Lord, Lord is authentic when practice is consistent with profession. The late R.C. Sproul considered Matthew 7, 21 through 23, the scariest recorded words of Jesus. And they should be scary for those who confessed Christ without truly knowing Christ. But for us, brothers and sisters, who do know Christ and are known by Christ, these words comfort and excite us to greater faithfulness. Hopefully the wind also excites us to greater faithfulness. Tim, are you faithful? Yes, I believe you are by the, by the Spirit's power. Self-examination is necessary and good, but it should not lead us to insecurity. It should bolster our security and dependence on Christ. And sometimes God uses sobering verses like these to awaken his people from spiritual carelessness, to revive their practice of repentance and to invigorate their commitment to holiness. So insecurity is not the aim. Renewed confidence 
and comfort in Christ and invigorated commitment to obedience are the aim. I'll admit preaching these verses is a great challenge for me because inside the visible church, there are those with genuine faith and those with counterfeit faith. How do I comfort those with genuine faith without giving false assurance to those with counterfeit faith? How can I warn those with counterfeit faith without stirring uncertainty in those with genuine faith? God help me. And may the Spirit apply these words to each of you in the way that you need to hear them. So let me ask, to whom am I preaching? Jesus was primarily preaching to his disciples who had entered through the narrow gate and were beginning their walk on the hard way to life. His purpose was not to unnerve them, but to strengthen them on the hard road. He lovingly distinguished them from the false converts saying, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. He wouldn't say that to his true disciples whom he had chosen, whom he knew, whom he was helping along the hard road of sanctification. So I'm preaching primarily to you, my dear brothers and sisters, to you who have entered through the narrow gate and are struggling on the hard road of sanctification, which leads to life. And only secondarily am I addressing any of you who might be here today who are self-deceived and religiously busy but have no union and relationship with Christ. I want to strike this balance well, but I'm greatly challenged by this. So I'd like us to think about conflicting confessions in the church. Jesus is talking about the visible church, about all those who confess Christ. Inside the visible church, there are two different kinds of confessions, but they sound the same. Jesus says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Same enthusiastic confession, Lord, Lord. But only one of those confessions leads into the kingdom of heaven, the other to eternal hell. Some will confess Christ and enter the kingdom. Others will confess Christ and not enter the kingdom. What's the difference between the two confessions? Well, it's actually quite simple. One confession is genuine and originates from Christ. The other is counterfeit and originates from human imagination. Of the estimated 2.3 billion Christians on earth, some genuinely confess Christ, and others are just imposters, fakes, charlatans. And this should not stir up uncertainty or anxiety or, or even suspicion within the church, but should stimulate careful self-examination and greater trust in Christ and renewed interest in repentance and obedience. So let's look first at the confession of counterfeit faith. This confession sounds authentic, but is actually fake. Number one, counterfeit faith can be orthodox. In other words, it can be doctrinally sound. Counterfeit faith can agree with the ecumenical creeds. Even the great reformed uh, confessions and catechisms. Counterfeit faith is dangerous because it's not heresy. It's theologically right. It sounds like genuine faith. It just lacks covenantal union and relationship with Christ. James Boyce said, 
A man can sit in the pews of a local church for years, firmly believing that Christ is God, that he died on the cross, and even that he is coming back one day to judge the world, and yet never come to the place where he trusts that same Jesus Christ as his Savior. End of quote. And Boyce is referring to belief in the sense of mere intellectual assent or agreement, a belief that stops short of communion with Christ. Demons have intellectual belief, but not communion. The scary thing about counterfeit faith is that it can be orthodox. It can affirm essential Christian doctrines. It can believe the Apostles' Creed in an intellectual way, but it lacks true communion with Christ. But counterfeit faith can also be all about warm and intimate fellowship with the wrong Christ, with a false Christ. Counterfeit faith may not be orthodox, but may be very excited about the wrong Christ. So sound doctrine and covenant fellowship are inseparable essentials. Number two, counterfeit faith does not lead into the kingdom of heaven, but does lead to eternal hell. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, many will confess, Lord, Lord, but on the last day he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. More than you confessing to know Christ, does Christ confess to know you? Jesus was talking about his return to judge the living and the dead. Later in Matthew 25, 41, Jesus uses the same language of judgment. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. When Jesus declares, I never knew you, depart from me, he is declaring final and definitive judgment to hell, and he's declaring it to people who confessed him. Three, counterfeit faith focuses on doing good works for God, doing good works for God rather than receiving grace from God and communing with God. Counterfeit faith, it strives to do big things for God, but completely neglects knowing God in the process. Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Why are they so focused on what they did for God and not on what Christ did for them and communing with God? They seem to be missing the relational component of true faith. And I think there's a connection here to, back to false prophets. Jesus mentions prophesying, casting out demons, and doing miracles in the name of Christ, which seems to imply extraordinary gifts and acts. However, I think verse 21 shows that, that it's a broader application to all false converts. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. So I, I think he's speaking broadly. Judas did all of these things, and yet Judas did not know Christ. He, he was the son of destruction. He had counterfeit faith. See, when, everyone, when anyone works for God, they should remember Romans 14, 23. 
for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. There must be covenant fellowship with Christ or else the confession of Christ is counterfeit. If we put verse 22 in present day evangelical terms, counterfeit faith may sound something like this. Lord, Lord, I, I grew up in a strong Christian home. Lord, Lord, I was baptized. Lord, Lord, I, I was an elder, a deacon, a committee chair. Lord, Lord, I taught Sunday school. Lord, Lord, I gave a lot of money to my church. Lord, Lord, I know the catechism. Those are wonderful things, wonderful things, but none of them are the means by which anyone enters the kingdom of heaven, and none of them equate to truly knowing and being known by Christ. They can all be done apart from Christ. It's easy to get caught up, brothers and sisters, in do, 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 do for God and to miss communing with Christ in the process. Let us know Christ. Commune with Christ and live for Christ by the provision of his daily grace and spirit. Number four, counterfeit faith is not actually union with Christ. We need to hear this loud and clear that Christ will never declare to his beloved people, I never knew you, depart from me. They are his body. They are his bride. They belong to him because he bought them with his precious blood. Christ says to those who only pay him lip service, I never knew you, depart from me. Number five, counterfeit faith produces the fruit of lawlessness, not the fruit of righteousness. Hypocrites can be very active and prominent in local churches, but they are are asked on the last day to depart from Christ because deep down they were workers of lawlessness, not righteousness. Listen, listen to this important point. Those who pay Christ lip service may be very busy in church, but because they do not know Christ and Christ does not know them, they are not being conformed to Christ by the Spirit and therefore not working righteousness out of thankfulness for receiving God's grace. They are lawbreakers working for themselves. They are like the scribes and Pharisees whom Jesus described as whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Within the visible church, there are people who appear pious, who appear devout, who appear committed, but who are actually dead inside because Christ is not there. As we seek to understand how counterfeit faith is different from genuine faith, James is very helpful. James 2, 14 asks, what good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? In other words, does, does a faith that fails to produce the fruit of righteousness actually save? James answers, no. 
because as James says in verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And then in verse 26, faith apart from works is dead. Dead faith confesses, but dead faith doesn't conform. Genuine confession is always accompanied by the fruit of righteousness and oftentimes varying amounts of fruit. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? See, a confession is gibberish without joyful submission to Christ. I think Jesus wanted to impress upon his disciples that true discipleship is confession unto conformity because of covenant love. I think Jesus was making a similar point in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. True disciples, true genuine disciples with genuine faith are regularly and constantly moving from guilt to grace to gratitude, from guilt to grace to gratitude as Christ sanctifies them on the hard road to eternal life. Dr. Doriani said, Thus, Lord, Lord, meets all the external criteria for a good confession. Yet in this case, it fails to meet the most important criterion, genuineness. There are two signs of genuineness, doing the will of the Father and knowing Jesus. End of quote. Knowing Christ intimately and having him sanctify you conform you to himself is the way to know that you have genuine faith. Your confession of Christ as Lord is genuine only when you truly know Christ and commit yourself daily to doing the will of his Father. Great comfort, great comfort comes in experiencing God's grace at work in you. I want to turn now to the confession of genuine faith. The confession of genuine faith. Brothers and sisters, this, this is our confession. This is our confession. We confess, Lord, Lord, with genuine confidence in the Lord. And, and together we do the will of God by the Spirit because we know Jesus and Jesus knows us. Now our obedience, oh boy, it's not perfect. Amen? It's just not perfect. But you see, our Lord's obedience, the Lord Jesus Christ's obedience, is perfect. And we have him, and we're experiencing his gracious work in our continual repentance, continual trust, continual dependence, continual sanctification. He is doing it in us. He is working it in us. And that must comfort us, brothers and sisters. Number one, genuine faith is orthodox. It's doctrinally sound because true faith receives Christ as he reveals himself in Scripture. What good is a heartfelt confession of the wrong Christ? However, heartfelt and passionate a confession may be. Having a false Christ excludes one from the kingdom. Genuine faith is knowing and loving Christ as he truly is. So orthodoxy is essential. Genuine faith is your 
sure knowledge and heartfelt acceptance of the one true Christ revealed in Holy Scripture. Genuine faith is you being confident that you have truly received Christ and his benefits, that you have received God's forgiveness of sins, you have received everlasting righteousness, you have received true salvation with genuine faith. You're confident that you know Christ and that you are known by Christ. You're thankful that you have Christ. You're thankful that you have his benefits, not because you have done great works, not because you are inherently good, but rather because God has imputed to you the great works and inherent goodness of Jesus Christ the King. Genuine faith is something that the Holy Spirit works in you by the gospel and Romans 8 16 happens for you it's a reality for you the spirit himself bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God counterfeit faith is not worked by the Holy Spirit it is worked by human imagination counterfeit faith is exclusively in the mind but genuine faith dear brothers and sisters genuine faith is in the mind so it is it must be orthodox and it's in the heart so it must be received with the open hand of faith and it is in the lifestyle it must bear fruit number two genuine faith provides refuge from eternal hell and life with the king in his kingdom verses 21 and 23 infer that many confess christ and enter the kingdom of heaven which means Christ knows many. As much as Jesus tells the workers of lawlessness, I never knew you, depart from me, he also tells the workers of righteousness, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Jesus is clear that he is not talking about his disciples in verses 21 through 23. Again, he said, I will declare to them, not to you, to them. He knew his disciples, chose his disciples, kept his disciples, and because of their inseparable union and communion with him on that last day, he will tell them, he will tell us, brothers and sisters, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The gospel is good news, not only because we escape the fires of hell, but because we enter by the kingdom, we enter into the kingdom by the merits of Christ to live forever with the king. Number three, genuine faith focuses on receiving grace from God and communing with God, which inevitably produces the fruit of good works for God. The poor in spirit are perpetually looking to receive from God in order to be more to, to, to commune more deeply with God, to be more faithful to serve God. Guilt, grace, gratitude is the natural progression of the poor in spirit. The law exposes their sin, misery, and need of Christ. They mourn their sin and misery, and the gospel gives them Christ, who is their pardon, their righteousness, their salvation their comfort their sanctification their hope and the law the law articulates the spirit's plan of sanctification for them the beatitudes do not describe those with counterfeit faith a, a good test of whether you know christ and are known by christ is to go back to the beatitudes 
Do they describe you? Is that who you are? If so, you belong to Christ and the entire Sermon on the Mount is the Spirit's plan of sanctification for you. It's your plan to express your love and devotion to God. True disciples, they hear the Sermon on the Mount in Scripture from Jesus, and this is what they conclude. Father, thank you for Christ, my righteousness, my guide, my strength. I want these things Transform me by your grace into this kind of person. Lead me by your spirit to do these things without hesitation and with great joy and with great dedication. I, I want to do them because you love me, because I love you. Produce this fruit in my life. I went on a mission trip. I've been on several, and I, I went on one one time where the manual labor of the trip greatly overshadowed the relationship with the people that we came to serve. How dangerous it is when our work for God overshadows our intimacy with God. In John 6, Jesus was asked, what must we do to be doing the works of God? You know how Jesus answered? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And moments later, Jesus added, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, or we could say into union and communion with him, should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. If God is truly working in you, if Christ actually knows you, you will find yourself throughout life looking to him, trusting in him, resting in him, communing with him, conforming to him. Brothers and sisters, the, the kingdom belongs to us, not because we have worked righteousness, but because we hunger and thirst for righteousness we don't have. And we go to Christ to get it. Number four, genuine faith is actual union with Christ. Now, nobody has ever argued with me whether I know my wife. I've never had that argument or discussion with somebody. They've never made the case against it. What argument would they, would they make? I, I know her. I, uh, not, not as good as I should, but, but I know her deeply. We are one flesh. I try to serve her because I love her. Who's going to argue otherwise? Would anyone have an argument against your confession and your communion? D does the way that you commune with Christ and the way that you receive grace from Christ give evidence that you know him and he knows you? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that means covenantal union and communion with Christ the Lord. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Saints, we are a new creation. 
united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, and we truly and actually commune with Christ through his word, by his spirit, filled with his love, and, and fully committed to doing what he says, to doing what he, what he teaches. Now, if you could, I, I want you to just lean in now and, and really listen. I think this is central to Jesus's point, and there is much comfort and much assurance for us here. Number five, genuine faith produces the fruit of righteousness. More precisely, Christ produces the fruit of righteousness through faith, which comforts and assures those with faith. Uh, now, according to verse 21, who enters the kingdom of heaven? Again, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those who bear the fruit of righteousness enter the kingdom. I think my Father, when he says my Father, is Jesus' expression of unique sonship divinity. Dr. Hendrickson aptly remarked the very fact that he never includes himself when he uses the term our father and of course never includes any others when he says my father or my own father shows that he viewed himself as son of God in a very special sense. End of quote. Jesus, God's only begotten son, does the will of his Father, and so do those whom Jesus, the Son of God, redeems and unites to himself. They're one with him. He empowers them to do as he does. He's working that. There is no obedience without union with Christ, for apart from me, you can do nothing. But a red flag might go up for you when you hear verse 21. Wait just a second. Oh, pastor, we know what you teach. We listen. I thought we were justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works. Why does Jesus say the one who does the will of God gets into heaven? Does Jesus contradict Paul? Does Paul contradict Jesus? Well, this requires very careful thinking. We must remember guilt, grace, gratitude. Jesus isn't teaching works righteousness or salvation by works. To whom is Jesus speaking? To his disciples who have entered by the narrow gate and are walking with him on the hard way to life. So Jesus is talking about the fruit of justification. He's talking about sanctification. One receives grace, is justified by Christ through faith, and joyfully obeys Christ as evidence of their justification. Jesus covered a lot of ground in the Sermon on the Mount, and at the end, he emphasized that a genuine confession is substantiated by ongoing obedience to all that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Genuine faith begins at the Beatitudes, especially with poverty of spirit and mournfulness over sin. Genuine faith receives Christ as the fulfillment of the law and prophets, receives Christ as the gospel, and then seeks to obey all that he taught because 
of his presence and his love which compel them to obey. So the Sermon on the Mount is for people who know their guilt, have received Christ by grace, uh, by faith, and who are walking the hard way of sanctification unto life by the power of and leading of the, of the Holy Spirit of Christ in them, at work in them. They are walking the painful road of being conformed to Christ. Can we be honest? Isn't it painful being conformed to Christ? Sanctification is not easy. It's hard. It's a hard road. But he is working it beautifully in us through hard things. They, they are not earning their salvation by living out the Sermon on the Mount. They are living out the Sermon on the Mount with increasing faithfulness because they have already received salvation in Christ. See, Christ is the only entry point to the kingdom of heaven. But the authenticating mark of truly receiving Christ and doing the will of Je is doing the will of Jesus Christ uh, and, and his Father. So in that sense, in a very careful sense here, no one will enter the kingdom of heaven without doing the will of God as expressed in the law and Sermon on the Mount. Because doing the will of God is the fruit, the evidence, the authentication, the confirmation of truly knowing Christ and being known by Christ. One enters the kingdom by Christ alone, by the merits of Christ alone, but by a Christ who produces wonderful fruit in their lives on the way to the kingdom. Leon Morris rightly said, quote, this is not salvation by works. The contrast is not between merit and grace, but between profession and way of life. If people really trust Christ for salvation, their lives will no longer be self-centered. That they belong to the good tree will be made manifest by the fruit they bear. Jesus is not saying that those who have earned, uh, that those saved will have earned their salvation, but that the reality of their faith will be made clear by their fruitful lives. End of quote. Calvin said, whoever then desires to be reckoned among the disciples must labor to devote himself sincerely and honestly to the exercises of a new life. End of quote. Your, your heartfelt desire and devotion to live a new life authenticates your confession of Christ. When the Heidelberg Catechism begins its gratitude section, and that's strategic, gratitude section it begins with this question since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ without any merit of our own why must we yet do good works it's talking about the good works in the gratitude section and the way that the question is asked indicates that good works are not the cause of our justification the question implies that good works follow deliverance from misery and so it answers because Christ having redeemed us by his blood also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image so that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits and he may be praised by us further that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits and that by our godly walk of life we may win our neighbors for Christ 
genuine faith produces the fruit of righteousness. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Are you being renewed by the Holy Spirit to be Christ's image? Is your whole life showing your thankfulness for God's grace? Are you sincerely praising God? Are the fruits of righteousness in your life providing you comfort and assurance? I don't think perfection is even part of the conversation. I mention it because our minds can sometimes go there, but wrongly. Perfection is not part of the conversation. I think Jesus was talking about sanctification, the love of Christ expressed in ever-increasing obedience, a growth in obedience, a growth in grace, spirit-wrought dependent on grace obedience. Dr. Doriani said, if we truly confess that Jesus is Lord, we must also be willing to bend our will to his, even if his directives seem unpleasant or foolish to us. End of quote. Jesus Jesus rallied his disciples to spirit-wrought faithfulness on the hard road of affliction and suffering. Is the cry of your heart, Lord Jesus, my Savior, my Master, bend my will to yours. Conform me to you. Give me evidence of your work in me. Father, your will be done in me. If that's you, the cry of your heart, then find comfort in verses 21 and 23. Don't leave here doubting your union with Christ. Leave here confident that Christ knows you and is working in you because you are striving to do what you're learning about in the Sermon on the Mount. I think Jesus was comforting his disciples kind of like this. Men, do what I've taught you. Do the law with all your heart because I've extended you grace. I am with you to help you. Lean on me, depend on me, hope in me. I have brought my kingdom to you. Now walk the hard road of suffering for, for my sake, and, and in time you will find yourselves at my table in my kingdom. False prophets and false converts, they will come, dear ones. Their apostasy will grieve you deeply, but trust me. Receive my grace, commune with, we, with me. Remember that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who truly believe. And dear ones, I will do in you what I've commanded you. Two things yet, and they're short. First, a caution for those with counterfeit faith. Friend, with counterfeit faith, how would I know? If, they're, if you're sitting here today, I, I don't know. But friend, with counterfeit faith, heed the warning of Christ. Your confession of Christ is empty because you do not know him and he does not know you. You are guilty under the law. You have no savior until you receive and you rest in Christ. Trust Christ. Come to Christ. Put all your confidence in his life. Put all your confidence in his crucifixion. Put all your confidence in his resurrection. Put all your confidence in his intercession for you. Stop working for God and simply receive Christ that you may commune with God and therein seek to glorify God by a life of true devotion and godliness. Be a worker of righteousness by receiving his grace. Second, some comfort for those with genuine faith. And it's got to be the majority of us. Maybe all of us. Brothers and sisters, 
my dear brothers and sisters, the dear sheep of God, our faith may be small. It may be weak. It may be sometimes, it might seem sometimes, like Jonathan Edwards described in his, his famous sermon, you hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. I mean, that's how it seems sometimes. Oh, good grief, I'm hanging on by a thread here, Lord. Can you help? I'm going to burn in a moment if you do. Well, that's how it feels. But genuine faith can be small. It can be weak. And those with genuine faith can sometimes fall into doubt and sometimes fall into insecurity. That's not where they want to stay, but that, that, that's part of what we do. Because we're weak, but fear not, dear sheep of the shepherd, your father is pleased, oh so pleased, to give you the kingdom. Your greatest joy is knowing him and being known by him, and he will bring you safely home. He has promised. So dear ones, look at the Sermon on the Mount and see how Christ is working in you, growing you in it growing you in what he's teaching and sanctifying you along that really hard road of sanctification that ends in eternal life. And then take heart. Take heart. Trust Christ to do in you all that he promised to do and to bring you faithfully and finally into his kingdom.